The views and content expressed on the following program are provided solely for informational and entertainment purposes. They do not constitute legal advice. A podcast is not a substitute for retaining a competent, licensed attorney to advise you on your specific legal situation. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the show. It is time for Break the Business, where we empower indie creators and have some fun along the way. I'm Ryan Carella, and it is a pleasure to have you here this week. So excited to be here. Equally excited to be joined by my co-host this week. Who's it going to be? We don't know. Yes, we know, because it was already spoiled in the tweets. It's JC. How's it going, JC? You didn't hit the random guest button tonight. Mm. Next week, just next week. Do that and then at like next week, it's just going to jumble us up and then some of us will be disappointed and some of them will be me. That's right. All of the guests that we, all the, all the co-hosts that we have for Break the Business are all in the waiting room right now. Katie, Bree, Elisa, Evan, Zach Sloan, but they don't know which one of them is going to be the co-host that week. And the rest We're of them are all in the green, the they're all in the green room right now, pissed off that they're, it's not their week. Too. No. My number was pulled. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course it was pulled because it's been entirely too long since I've had you here. I miss you, man. How have you been? I'm, it's rude every time, but you know, you pull me back in, so I can't be <laughs> mad at you. Well, this is like this is what growing up is for me because we used to live in the same town. Like we went to school together. We would hang all the time. It was like you and me and Evan and Elisa. And then life happens and people move. And, you know, the, the siren the song of the country. they do. The siren song of Portland. To too hard for you to resist. That's a, <laughs> that might be. It's like, well, he can make me come on his stupid podcast, but that doesn't mean I have to live in the same town as him anymore. But it's true. Well, uh, it's the only way I could get you to get me on your podcast. <laughs> if I moved as far away as possible, it's the only way we can communicate now. That's right. So. Well, I'm happy to have you because you're the guy I talk to when pop culture things happen. And. When this whole Mike Richards saga with Jeopardy took place, I was like, I got to talk to JC about this because in the span of what, two weeks, he went from I'm the host of the Jeopardy, I'm the host of Jeopardy to I'm not the host of the Jeopardy to I'm unemployed. Okay, but but let's back up because he was employed as an executive producer, right? right? So he's like the guy in charge so the biggest thing about this whole thing is that he's like, you know what? I'm in charge. Make myself the host. Totally going to work out for me. Uh, cut to, you know, a couple days ago. Yeah. Definitely not the host and not the EP anymore. Really, the mistake was having the parade of famous, likable co-hosts audition for the job, right? Because if they just said... Um, you know, rest in peace, Alex Trebek. Here's the new guy, Mike Richards. We would have all been like, all right, he must have been like the host in waiting. They probably guaranteed him the job, you know, two years ago, and he's just been waiting his turn. All right, welcome aboard, Mike. But, you know, they did all this and got us all excited about Mayim Bialik and LeVar Burton and everything and Aaron Rodgers <laughs> that we don't want Mike Richards. That, that celebrities also go through that thing where you're like, oh, I'm going to interview for this job but i bet they've got someone already lined up for this job and uh they just didn't tell me for it so we're just acting now so celebrities go through that too lavar now you get how the rest of us feel <laughs> when we go out for that interview and you know someone already works there is going to get that job that's right i mean or the boss gets the job or the or yeah or the job goes to the boss <laughs> which is really the situation that we're all much more familiar with look this all just need i have a quick resolution to this because right now jeopardy one of the okay. beloved game show institutions of our time is in flux they don't know what to do and i think the simple answer here is they just got to make you the host you are I mean, you that's are that's what i was thinking yeah. from the beginning i see our producer lauren yeah. clapping she's on board with that i think you'd be great at it and as many of our viewers and listeners might not know, you have some game show experience. Extensive game show appearances, as in one appearance several years ago on the syndicated version of a not as beloved game show. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Oh extensive. Yeah. No, it was, it was, it was so, so great. Um, I remember, uh, you and me and, uh, Evan and Elisa, actually, we all went to the audition together 
And you were the only one who was picked, which I think, you know, probably had to make you feel kind of good. Like, you know, these people think they're smart. I'm clearly the smartest Speaks of our circle of friends. Speaks a lot to my experience. Yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, we have a question asker asking which yeah. show. Can you, can, you, can you give us the show? Now we... It, it was a reveal. We were going to save that till the next time I was actually invited back onto the podcast uh, months from now. Uh, but uh, yes, the show was Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Mm-hmm. Spoiler, I am not a millionaire. <laughs> Apparently not you. You didn't want it bad enough. <laughs> didn't want it enough. But yes, I did go on Who Wants yeah. to Be a Millionaire? The syndicated version of that show you know what my most favorite part and and i do want to get like a 60 second version of your experience on that show and what it was like but i first want to because this is you know my show so i got to make it about me i have to relate to you what was my favorite part about you being on that show which is probably your least favorite part of being on that show was there was like a what eight to ten week gap between your appearance on that show and when it actually aired on television But you had signed a confidentiality agreement where you couldn't tell us how you did on that show. So then all of us, all of all of your friends, we got to spend two and a half months trying to pry it out of you where we'd be sitting at dinner and the check would come. We'd be like, we're splitting this check. Or are we, JC? Or (laughs) is he paying for everything? Oh, no. In that seven to eight weeks, I definitely was a millionaire. I can tell you all now. Because the NDA is long past. But I I will tell you, I was fully living my life as a millionaire because, you know, the only person other than me and, you know, my partner that knew was, uh, you know, Cedric the Entertainer. So. Can you give us like one good story from that taping? Oh, my gosh. Sitting in the green room was fantastic. I will say the, the thing that I dislike the most is that my partner told me that I was supposed to be up first that day. Okay. It was the last game of double your money week on the show. So calculating what I made, which was not a million dollars, uh, I would have had double that. So I did walk away with some money, but I was kind of peeing. And I bet the, the questions were totally all questions that I knew. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but apparently they pushed me back and they wanted me on the regular show because, you know, I was so good. Uh, so I needed to be with the harder questions uh, that totally got me kicked off without winning a million dollars. I remember on the show, God, and we're going to get to entertainment news in just a second here, but I do have to share this because I remember this. I remember on the show, I guessing before the show starts, they had you do some kind of questionnaire because they're kind of digging for interesting facts for you to bring up. And for some reason, in the course of your questionnaire, you led Cedric the Entertainer to believe that your whole job was like singing songs at funerals. Because when you came on the show, like, that's what all the questions, like, the the opening get-to-know-you questions was Cedric the Entertainer just harping on you being the funeral singing guy. Now, you were a professional singer. You sing at all sorts of places, funerals just being one of them. But, like, you became, like, the funeral singing guy on the show. I mean, yeah, at some point in the Mad Lib of questions that they (laughs) give you, so it's all this, like fill in your personality sort of thing. And it's like, what have you done the most? I don't know. Sing at funerals was probably the thing that I thought was <laughs> the most interesting part of me at the time. Uh, so yeah, it, it just becomes, you know, at, at this point we've seen so much reality television that that's not a weird thing. No. This happened like seven years ago at this point. Uh, but like fill in the blank personalities are something that we see all the time. Have you watched uh, any reality show on Netflix, <laughs> you'll see yeah. that like basically anyone on television is a fill in the blank reality personality. Uh, so that's what game shows kind of are. You have like 10 minutes to spend with this person and feel like connected to them enough to be engaged in them winning money. So I don't know. Well, I was engaged with you winning money. That that was like the most. Thank you. 
I was going to say like that was like the most exciting like 30 minutes I've ever had watching television, but it was kind of more like six or seven minutes if I remember correctly. It, it, uh, again, I did not win a million dollars, so I didn't get that second episode. Damn, they didn't, kill, they didn't hold you over for another week. All right, our guest coming up after the break, excited to talk to her, entertainment attorney Mitra Ahurian. Uh, she's really cool, JC. We talked to her before the break starts. I've seen like YouTube videos with her. I've read a bunch of articles where she's kind of featured in Forbes a lot. Forbes does this thing where it's like, we asked 14 really cool, interesting people this question about business. And she's always one of the 14 because she's cool and interesting. And I have this really weird jealousy about cool entertainment lawyers because I'm a lawyer and I feel like my journey to becoming a lawyer was forged with me having to deal with a lot of uncool stuff, right? I had to spend a lot of time in the library. I had to accept getting picked last for all the sports. I understood that the path to being a lawyer required like that level of self-sacrifice. Like I don't get to be cool. I have to be a lawyer. And then somebody like Mitra Hurian comes around who is undeniably cool. Like you just, you see her website, you see the video she's in just cool in every sense of the word. And she's like a really awesome entertainment lawyer to the stars. So uh, I'm going to be wildly jealous for the whole interview, but we got a lot of great stuff to talk to her about because she is a true advocate for empowering creators, just the kind of person we want to have on the program. So you're saying you're not in the group text. <laughs> I, I don't think I'd be invited to her group text now. Um, okay. But since, you know, since she's here, um, I do want to celebrate the occasion by talking a little bit of entertainment law news this week. Why did you judge me? You killed innocent people. The means to an end. You started a massacre. I caused the revolution. You betrayed the law. Thank you, Mr. Asante. How familiar are you, <laughs> JC, with this, this saga that's going along, going on right now with Good For You by Olivia Rodrigo and Misery Business by Paramore and just like that whole rigmarole? I am kind of up to date unfortunately on all of the rigmarole that is with these two songs yeah and all of the attention they are bringing to interpolation oh yeah that's a look at that little nice little music legal term there a little bit of interpolation happening just to catch everybody up and you know that being said there's a lot of folks in pop culture who've been following this for a while because ever since good for you came out there's a whole bunch of people kind of in our millennial generation we're like it kind of sounds like misery business by paramore and so what's happened is recently it was revealed by, uh, is announced by uh, publications like Billboard that songwriting credits on the Olivia Rodrigo good song, Good For You, have been updated to now include uh, Paramore band member Haley Williams and former Paramore member Josh Farrow, who were writers on Misery Business. And uh, and those and that move was sort of prompted by alleged similarities between the two songs. And you're seeing this a lot now in with these copyright issues like this happened with uh sam smith and tom petty recently where tom petty was added as a co-writer to stay with me by sam smith because there were some accusations that it sounded too similar to the uh tom petty and the heartbreaker song won't back down so this is kind of the latest yeah. in a trend that's been happening ever since a few years ago when a jury laid down a massive verdict against robin thick and all those folks who made the song Blurred Lines Blurred because lines. of alleged similarities to Got to Give It Up by Marvin Gaye. And so this is kind of a recent trend. Like you, you haven't seen, you didn't really start to see this kind of thing happening over and over again in the music industry until Robin Thicke happened when a jury laid down a massive seven figure verdict and the entire songwriting industry collectively crapped its pants because realizing, oh God, as I'm writing this song, could another song be in my subconscious and find its way onto the page here? And now I have to pay up, you know, to the tune of a, a big lawsuit. Uh, Katy Perry got embroiled in this recently where her song Dark Horse was considered, you know, was alleged to be similar to a Christian rock gospel song called Joyful Noise. A copyright jury agreed a judge overturned that verdict. But this is happening a lot. Uh, Ed Sheeran's another one with uh, similarities between his song Thinking Out Loud and, again, a Marvin Gaye song, um, which, uh, gosh, uh, Let's Get It On, you know, and by the way, which just shows the, like, Marvin Gaye is just kind of the godfather of every piece of pop music that exists now, and, you know, it's his world, we're just living in it. It's it's the new Simpsons did it. Marvin Gaye did it. <laughs> well, 
I can tell you as an entertainment lawyer who works with a lot of songwriters, I, <laughs> I hear from them about their concern about this, right? I remember I was at the NAM convention a few months after the, the uh, Blurred Lines verdict came down, and, you, and there were a whole bunch of songwriters freaking out. Like, could this happen to me? Is this song that I just wrote, did, is it too similar to something else? Did I have a song in the back of my head that found its way onto the page? And, and so I, you know, no matter what level of songwriter you are, this is a concern that you have. And I think the law has lost its way here. I mean, I'm interested to hear what uh, Mitra Hurian thinks in the next segment about this. But my feeling is that a lot of the copyright judges out there are interpreting the law between uh, copyright law regarding similar songs incorrectly or at least not favorable enough to uh, new songwriters and leaving a lot of cases that shouldn't be left to a jury to a copyright jury and the problem is copyright juries are dangerous (laughs) that you don't want to leave them to make these decisions because i'm convinced i tell people this all the time i could lock a copyright jury in a room and play slayer and mini ripperton and if I leave them in there for long enough, they're going to think they sound the same. Or you get these experts that come in. And I mean, we're kind of trained to link these things together. Right. Uh, it's like, what are the parts that make it up? My question for you, especially as a lawyer and you sort of getting into this space now, is how sleazy is it? I, I feel like this is almost the next frontier, if you if you'd like to say it, of like, almost like an ambulance chasing sort of thing. Like you could just go down a path of saying that every song sounds like my client's song uh, and sort of squeeze money out of people. And again, I'm just as sort of the musician side of this, I'm kind of freaking out that Mm -hmm. these things can sound really close to each other, but not necessarily. We only have so many notes, only have so many core progressions that sound right uh, for a particular style. So where can this all go? All excellent points. And I, I mean, I, I share your concern. Now. I feel like the law has gotten to a place where all a enterprising plaintiff's lawyer needs is a a musicologist in a dream. Like you just need somebody on the faculty of some music yeah. school to like pull up some sheet music and, you know, make a decent enough argument for similarity. And then after that, you just lock a copyright jury in a room and play the songs long enough and they're going to find similarity. But the reason why copyright juries are unreliable here, and this isn't just me hating on juries, it's that what what's happening here is that a lot of juries, in my view, and a lot of judges too, and just a lot of people are finding similarities between two songs that are not the sort of similarities that copyright law should normally be looking at when determining something is substantially similar. So what you see happen a lot. So, so when we're talking about misery business versus good for you, what they're alleging is a similarity between the original composition of misery business and the original composition of good for you, not the sound recordings. The sound recordings are a different copyright and under copyright law, You can only generally infringe on a sound recording if you're using the identical sound recording. So when you're doing one of these inquiries about whether two songs are substantially similar, you have to strip out all of the things that are in the sound recording, the production, the backbeats, you know, the the loops, the things that are not protectable as part of the original composition and strip it all down to what's essentially the lyrics and the melodic content. And if those are similar then you have uh, actionable infringement. But a lot of judges, a lot of juries, a lot of people, you know, can't necessarily do that. And so what happens with misery business is, and I I invite our, our listeners and our viewers to do this, go and listen to the two songs and ask yourself, what's really similar about them? And your, your thoughts going to be the backbeat because they do have similar backbeats, which is generally not protectable. The chords are identical, right? It's, it's one, four, five six or one four six five or something like that one four six five i think yeah one four six five the the, yeah so the so in the chorus the chord progressions are identical but chord progressions are not copyright infringement because if there's only a billion songs that use the one chord the five four chord the five chord and the six chord right like all of pop music is right uh, has a writing credit on this song now that is the foundation of pop music are those four chords so generally you're not going to get to own those 
Oh, let's see. We got a listener question here. I thought you couldn't copyright music to some extent, like lyrics can, but por- putting chords in a certain order, you couldn't. Generally, that's true for the most part, right? What you're protecting when you're getting a copyright in a musical composition is the lyrics and the melody. And and sometimes if your if your chords imply a melody, maybe you can get that sort of thing. But but generally, everything above and beyond that is usually not protectable in the musical composition copyright. That being said, blurred lines is kind of that that blurred lines case has made all this doctrine really up in the air and confusing. But that's that's the general rule, at least the way I was taught it when I was a lad in school. But so when you so when you take out the chords and when you take out the backbeat, when you take out the fact that they're both pop songs sung by angsty, you know, teenage, 20 year old women and, you know, strip out all the similarities, you get, you know, lyrics that are completely different. And a melody that, while it has some similar notes and lands on some of the similar beats and kind of gives you the same vibe, they're not identical melodies. Like, if you were to sing Good For You to the tune of Misery Business, it's not going to sound right. Like, if you, if, you, if you were at karaoke and you sang Good For You to the tune of Misery Business, you could boot off the stage. So it's yeah. not, they're not the same. But we're taking a lot of things that are usually not protectable we're seeing similarity there. And when you put this all in the context of blurred lines that everybody's afraid of being the next Robin Thicke, all these artists are erring on the side of caution. So Olivia Rodrigo is giving two members of Paramore songwriting credit that could potentially be worth millions of dollars or you know something in the high six or, or low seven figures, perhaps. That's a, a pretty big concession to make. And you know, as a, as a, as a lawyer, I am, I'm concerned about this route that we're on i think it's i think it's a scary track and it's gotten to the point where i would advise any once you as a songwriter have reached a certain you know threshold when you when you've gotten to a certain level of fame you're you're putting stuff out there it's getting recorded by stuff one of the first things i'd recommend to an artist is look very seriously into what's called an e and o policy which stands for errors and omissions it's an insurance policy and basically you're getting insurance coverage for if something like this were to happen, because all of these artists, none of them, you know, I assume the best of intentions in most artists, they're not trying to steal other people's work, but these things get stuck in the back of your head and copyrights what's known as a strict liability crime or not a crime, but a strict liability offense, which means even if you didn't mean to do it, even if you didn't intend to do it, even if it was completely like, you know, just by accident, you're still liable for infringement. And so with that kind of risk and, and the way that the doctrine is shaping now post-blurred lines, I recommend that artists get insurance coverage. And, oh, I did want to mention this other point because the reason why I got this story, JC, was uh, Elisa brought this to me. She's like, you got to talk about this. I was like, whatever Elisa says goes, of course. <laughs> and she sent me the video of uh, this guy, Adam Neely, who's a music journalist. Um, you know, she's a big fan of his. Apparently I watched his video on the subject and then I immediately fell into a rabbit hole and watched a bunch of his videos. Cause God, he's smart. But one of the I things, mean, yeah, if you, if you didn't bring him up, I would have totally you <laughs> uh, recommended watching Adam Neely's video. If you have any interest in this, please watch this video. One of the things that Adam Neely said in the video, that was really interesting. And this is going to definitely appeal to you as a singer, as a music degree holder. You know this stuff better than I do. But one of the things he said is that when you have a certain common chord progression, you know, one, four, six, five in this case, um, there is a limited universe of melodies that are implied by that chord progression, right? You can't just like certain melodies are going to sound better even in the same key, certain melodies are going to sound better if you use that chord progression. So if we've already taken the assumption that like you can't own a chord progression, what would then logically follow is we might not, you also can't own all of the melodies that are implied well by a particular chord progression, because again, there's a limited universe and there's a copyright doctrine that fits into this called sense affair. What Sense Affair tells us... Okay, you'll have to break yeah, that no, down for me. I know, I got, I, I'm getting really technical here, but this, but this is, it's pretty important. So Sense Affair says that um, if there are certain ideas, if there's a limited universe of ideas that you're trying to use to tell a story, uh, you can't prevent other people from using those ideas. For example, if I wanted to make a movie about World War II, 
you know, there are certain things that are going to be in every movie about World War II. You're going to have, like, Nazis marching. You're going to have, you know, bombs blowing up. You're going to have airplanes flying overhead and dogfights, right? I can't prevent other people from having those same kind of scenes in their World War II movies because that would effectively give me a monopoly over World War II movies. So when you think about these two songs, do they kind of have similar melodic elements? Yes. You know, when you, when you hear the two songs together, you get kind of, you know, a lot of the similar notes. But how much of that is because there is a limited universe of melodies implied by a certain chord progression? And so it's the same idea of I can't prevent other people from using airplanes in a World War II movie. I can't prevent other people from using the limited universe of melodic elements implied by a one, four, six, five chord progression. And that's the way I think judges need to be interpreting this. But until they do, get an E&O insurance policy, people. <laughs> yeah, until the uh, technology improves, I guess. Yeah. As well, far as human history goes. Here's the other element of this, JC, that uh, I think is also coming into play, although we millennials don't want to admit it. I think, because a lot of these complaints, right, where people are like, this sounds like misery business, it's coming from people in our generation, right? The ones where misery business means a lot to us because it was a hit when we came of age. The younger people sure. don't know misery business because here's something that's going to scare you, dude. Misery business is, what, 14 years old at this point? I believe I have this right. Because no, no, no. Yeah, seven, yeah it's, it's 14 years old. So here's here's something that i'm gonna so so like the, all i think this is is it's millennials just wanting to be relevant we want to think that olivia rodrigo cares about our music so damn much <laughs> that like we just want paramore to have its place in the sun again i'm gonna tell you something jc i had to look this up okay um and i'm gonna tell you something it's, it's gonna make you sad i want you to emotionally prepare yourself okay for how old this song is okay ready are you prepared? Are you? I want all the listeners and viewers to be prepared. If you are over the age of 33 and watching or listening to this show, I want you to mentally prepare for what I'm about to tell you because it's going to make you mad. The amount of time that has passed between the release of Misery Business and the release of Good For You is the same amount of time that has passed between the release of Misery Business and the release of Rump Shaker by Rex in Effect. And mm. Hip Hop Hooray by Naughty by Nature. And 500 Miles by The Proclaimers. I can't even fathom how much time that is. You know, it's like a almost like a classic. So if we take us back to the misery business time, we would say, oh yeah, that's a classic. Like, yeah. <laughs> those were classics back then. So now misery business is now our classic. I, I get where you're going with this. Us millennials like to complain. <laughs> we will continue to complain. <laughs> it's kind of what we do. Yeah. It's, it's our, it's our world. Like we, we are losing control over relevancy, right? It's the, there's a, there's a new cooler generation. Like there's, you know, the Olivia Rodrigo's are roaming the earth and that's, it's their world now. And we just want to feel a part of it. So we're going to go yell at yeah. Olivia Rodrigo because she interpolated a melody slightly. We, we've got to take the, the, the girl from High School Musical, the musical, the series <laughs> down a peg. Okay. <laughs> just take her right down a peg. <laughs> Rump shaker. That's what... Yes. <laughs> Wrap your head around that. Thank you. That was our rump shaker moment that was for our... the episode. That's right. Want to want to give rump shaker its place in the sun again. All right. Um, the moral of the story is if you if you're if you're making any kind of traction as a songwriter, for God's sake, get some you know insurance because it is a crazy world out there. Post blurred lines. All right. Micho Hurrians coming up next. Do not go anywhere. Keep checking out. Break the business. Ryan Carella here. I hope you're enjoying the show, and I hope that you're getting a lot out of it. I do what I do because I care about creators like you. A lot. I've dedicated my career to helping creative professionals, entrepreneurs, and organizations move forward. I do it by hosting this program, and I'm also proud to do it in my legal practice. If you're a creative professional looking for solutions-oriented legal services to help you further your goals, I'd love to help. My firm, RKPA, does contracts, commercial law, copyright, trademark, and more. Visit rkpalaw.com to learn more. That's rkpalaw.com. Ryan A. Corella, PA, Miami, Florida.
Streaming services for Break the Business provided by L.E.K. Entertainment. L.E.K. Entertainment is a full-service entertainment company offering everything from consultations to full-scale events and productions, including audio and video productions, voiceovers, staged theatrical productions, script and music development, and streaming services. For more information, visit lekentertainment.com. L.E.K. Entertainment wants to help you bring your story to life. Thanks for supporting Break the Business. If you have a question or topic that you want us to discuss, email us at breakthebusiness at gmail.com. You can follow the host, that's me, on Twitter at Ryan K-A-I-R, and you can follow the show at The BTB Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Twitch, YouTube, and Facebook, and on all major podcast platforms. And now, let's get back to the show. You heard the man, let's get back to the show. Our guest this week is the founder and principal attorney of Ahorian Law, an L.A.-based entertainment firm that specializes in handling a wide range of legal issues for entertainment professionals and organizations. She has represented some of the most prominent actors, producers, and directors in Hollywood, and you can find out more about her work by visiting www.mitra-law.com. Happy to welcome Mitra Ahurian on to Break the Business. Hello, Counselor. How are you? Oh, wait, you are muted. She's still muted. Can we, um, can we unmute her? We, nope. I unmute. Mute. There we go. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry. That only happens like every week on this show. Every week. I don't. I don't know. I thought I would naturally. Somebody would be doing it for me. I'm spoiled like that. Totally kidding. Me. Um, <laughs> um, I've been listening to the. First of all, thank you so much. I heard the kind words about me. Or that was so sweet. But I've been listening to the conversation already, and it's been so fantastic. So I'm excited to jump in. I like that. Let's bring you into it. I, I do want to hear more about how you got started in law and everything, because I, I always find the origin stories of entertainment lawyers to be endlessly fascinating. But before that, let's let's talk a little more, Olivia Rodrigo. Uh, what do you think of this case? Uh, you know, what do you think of the discussion so far? Well, before I get into the case, I just got to say I'm a huge fan of hers. I think her music is phenomenal. Right. She's oh, so gosh. Great. She's so good. Um, and, you know, after this situation, I actually kind of love her even more. Um, you know, you mentioned the blue, Blurred Lines lawsuit. That was a $7.3 million judgment that I think they ended up paying five. Um, like you said, juries are unpredictable, but... You know, it's this balance between, or tension rather, between copyright law and creativity, right? And so Mm -hmm. the idea is that copyright law should protect artists, but also it should not create this chilling effect to the point that it stifles creativity. And I think that after, you know, Robin Thicke and Marvin Gaye and Pharrell, I think there, there definitely has been a chilling effect. I think there's been you know, this, this nervousness. And it was, it was a fear coming out of that, that I actually was involved in a lot of commentary around that case. And there was absolutely a fear around it having a chilling effect on artists. Like, you know, every time somebody is inspired in a studio, are they now thinking, oh, wait, did I inadvertently take that from here? And like you said, there's only so many chords, there's only 12 notes, you know, <laughs> there's only so many ways that you can arrange and, um, and it's natural to be inspired. And so what I'd love, if you think about, she's already expressed that like, you know, Taylor Swift, who she also credited on Um, Deja Vu is like one of her songwriting idols. Um, She's expressed that she's been inspired by these, you know, other songwriters and artists. So the smarter thing, she's been very smart here to really acknowledge this um, influence they've had on her. I mean, if she's going to end up in a bad lawsuit and pay $7 million anyway, why not look like a person that really is honoring artists and cutting them in? Um, so I actually think it's brilliant and, um, and it's also really commendable in my opinion. And that way, you know, we also get to avoid kind of having all of these, uh, these artists end up in court. Yeah. It, it's nice that for the most part, like, while it's not a perfect solution, I think this modern innovation of just sort of, we're going to give this person songwriting credit 
it, it is sort of a quick mechanism to resolve these things, right? Like, I mean, you've done plenty of litigation in your time. You know how hard it can be to settle legal disputes, how much infighting and paperwork's involved. The idea that, like, we can just make you a co-writer, and I'm sure there's plenty of paperwork in the background to make all that happen, but the idea that, like, we have some simplicity to resolve what can be an otherwise pretty contentious issue. Right, and, you know, if I love an, an artist like Taylor Swift and I'm kind of an up-and-coming, but I'm doing really well, putting Taylor Swift's credit <laughs> and giving her points on my song is only going to do well by you know well for me and maybe next time she will want to write a song with me so i just think that it really speaks to the spirit of songwriting and creating and um you know that that collaboration that is inherently a part of creating art i think i got your plan jc you got to write your next song and just say that taylor swift was a co-writer and then she'll become your best friend it's it's true Think, think about well, how much Olivia more popular Rodrigo. that song's going to get. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, all right. So uh, you know, great insight, uh, Mitra. I'm, I, I am, I'm glad that we were able to benefit from your expertise and experience on this. And I kind of want to know how you got to this place. I love, as I said before, hearing the entertainment lawyer origin stories. You get some of the entertainment lawyers who have a background in music. Maybe they played in bands or they were a child actor, did some movies, things like that. And then they find that they're more interested in the legal side. And then you get the people like me who wouldn't be allowed anywhere near a recording studio, but are just a <laughs> appreciator of the arts. JC laughed a little too hard at that. <laughs> but, uh, and, but, and just, and, and sort of fell in love with the legal technical side of things and, you know, made a career out of entertainment law. Where are you in all of that? Um, I mean, I'm definitely a big fan of the arts more, you know, even more now that I'm an entertainment lawyer, but growing up, my, my family really encouraged us um, on, you know, on top of whatever our education and career goals were, we had this um, encouragement to be very well-rounded. I played piano. I was in um, a dance company. I was in a children's theater company. I was in pageants. Like it was just, that was a big part. And my mom was a professionally trained singer. So um, we, when we had parties, she was always singing. My brother was playing the piano with her. We had other artists in our home. Um, my brother plays incredible flamenco guitar. Um, so kind of a, create, a creative family, but also, you know, my mom's a psychologist and my dad's a surgeon. My dad just now passed away. Um, I had always dreamt of going to medical school and I did everything I could and worked very hard and went to UCLA pre-med, studied psychobiology. In my last year of school, my dad got very sick and it was very much survival mode for um, that entire year, kind of in and out of ERs and hospitals. And for medical school, you have to be willing really to go anywhere in the nation where you match um, and you're going away for a while. <laughs> and so really in that moment, it was just that I'm not going to not go to grad school. I'm graduating and uh, medical school se seems like really far away right now. And I wanted to be close to home. I wanted to be with my family. And it was also very much. Oh, so I went to law school because it was three years. and I could <laughs> be local. Like that's what happened. Mm -hmm. And in my head, I said, when I graduate, that's fine. Once we know what's going on and everything, and I'll just do that no harm, no foul kind of thing. And yeah. I'll just always come back to medical school if I want at the end of it. And then of course the rest is history. My dad passed away two months after I got my bar results and, you know, going back to school was really the last thing on my mind. And I thought that, um, I would do patent law because it made sense. I had a science background, as you know, a lot of people go to law school, don't have their, um, their bachelor of science they typically have BAs. And so I thought that would give me a leg up and also allow me to, you know, really incorporate my love for science with um, this new skill that I have. And so I didn't really know my place. I was trying to find my place. And so I'm at a big firm and I'm on a patent pharmaceutical case and that's what I'm doing. Um, and I ended up getting put on an entertainment case, a big merger with two major entertainment conglomerates um, and was just, you know, I'm, I'm a lifelong learner. So when I was put on this case, I just kind of was learning about, you know, entertainment law, even though it was corporate law and we were doing, you know, 
It was the Department of Justice inquiry into pricing practices. It was very different, very different than the entertainment law I do now. Um, but I just started to get really interested and I just was like, you know what? I'm filling my time. I'm mourning. I started taking a class at UCLA in the entertainment business. Um, took another class, really liked it. Ended up doing a whole program just in the evening while I was at school. I was filling my time and I fell in love with film finance and found a mentor um, in my professor, you know, professor of mine who was really the first lawyer that I met that I really resonated with that I was like, oh, I could see myself doing this because she kind of did it her way. Yeah. And before that, I was just in such a corporate setting that wasn't, um, that wasn't me, frankly. And so to really find my place was such a blessing, but it was like, I had no idea that's what it was going to be. No clue. Um, and if you think about, you know, if I were to ever think about, would I ever be doing anything in the entertainment business? That would have been a hard no. Um, because, you know, I grew up in LA, everyone's a producer, everyone's an actor, everyone's something. (laughs) That wasn't, that was never my path. That was never my world. I was very much in like academia. And as much as I love the arts, that was never really going to be you know, the world that I was operating in. And luckily I'm really good at it and I absolutely love it. And it's just such a match for my personality. And I've, you know, and I managed to use all the skills I've picked up along the way, like having the analytical scientific mind and the psychology and all the other things. So, um, and I get to be around artists, which is like, the coolest thing ever. <laughs> and I can see where a background in psychology will help you with interacting yes. with that particular population. <laughs> oh my God. It's, it's, it is so much. One of my favorite things is really strategy. And that's a big part of it. Absolutely. Is understanding psychology. So. There's a lot of differences in our stories in the law major. Like for one thing, like nobody would ever let me anywhere near a Bachelor of Science degree. So the fact that that's a big part of your background, I, I tip my hat to you. That's very impressive. You don't you don't get too many scientists in our profession. It was cha- it was challenging, um, <laughs> but, but amazing. One thing where I think we are similar, and I think it, it it drove both of us into this field is, you know, I was also in a family where the arts, you know, wasn't something that like my parents did professionally, at least like not while I was alive. But it was always something that was part of our life. We were always singing songs growing up and things like that. And my sister works professionally uh, in, in the arts industry. But I had never thought, like, I'm going to be a professional artist. But I was like, you know what? Growing up around the arts is still a valuable experience. It's self-confidence. It teaches you critical thinking skills. There's a lot to. And, but I was like, I'm going to take that stuff and treasure it. But I'm going to go to law school and be uh, a corporate lawyer or a law professor, something like that. And it never occurred to me that I could like take this passion from my childhood that I thought was so formative for me as it was for you and find a way to turn it into a profession and get to be around the people that I love being around that you love being around, which are creators. And that has to be like, it certainly is the case for me. It has to be the most satisfying thing about what you do, knowing that you can help that particular population, that you help creative people put creative things into the world and help protect them from all the dangers that are out there. Yeah, and I had no idea how much protecting they needed until I was doing it. Um, <laughs> it's a nightmare out there. Um, I mean, you, you know, you always hear that. Sorry, my dog is, is oh, agreeing with What me. kind of dog? What kind of dog? We have to know. <laughs> a, a little Maltese with a big bark. Um, he's agreeing. He's like, I will protect the artist. Um, yeah. but <laughs> They're very protective dogs, to be fair. <laughs> Here's me talk about... Artists getting taken advantage of, and he's on it. Um, but really, I had no idea until I really started, you know, working in the industry and looking at the contracts. And it was like, what? Are you kidding? Like, <laughs> wait, no. You know, so it was. It's just a lot of that. And you know, one of the things I'm passionate about is is making the law accessible. And it sounds like you know you have you have the same passion. Is that it's so inaccessible. It is so indigestible it's so hard to understand it's and the information isn't really out there in a way that is you know that that makes people engage and really want to learn about it and so it's a really tough thing as an up-and-coming artist because you probably don't have a lawyer you probably don't have the money for a lawyer and that's when you need it the most yeah so 
programming like this and some of the stuff that I do that's, you know, educational content, I think is so key. It's just a little, you know, they're not going to get everything and it's never going to take the place of having a lawyer, but arming and empowering people to really take control over their careers and also the things that they need to be aware and look out for, um, you know, you know, issue spotting is the, is one of the biggest things that, um, that, that we know how to do. And so like, you know, if we can teach artists how to issue spot to see where the issues are, I think that's one of the most empowering things that we can do. And one of the things that you do in this crusade to make the law more accessible, which is one of many things, because you blog, you go on programs like this, is you're pretty active on Clubhouse. You, you sort of s- set up camp there and use that as a vehicle by which to get information out to creators and to to build your brand and things like that. Can Can you talk about your experience on Clubhouse and maybe talk about the potential that this platform might offer for creators to network, to, uh, to meet people, to get their music out there or yeah. whatever art I mean, they do. It, it's another thing that was just kind of this organic thing that happened. A friend of mine, uh, turned me onto the app back in December, you know, December of last year. Um, because I was thinking about buying Airbnb stock and PS I've never bought stock before in my life, but I had an opportunity <laughs> to buy free IPO stock. And, um, and I was trying to learn about it as, as I could. And, um, my friend, um, who was staying with me for a couple nights, she was like kind of walking around the house listening to this thing. And she's like, they're talking about the Airbnb IPO, you know? And so she invites me to the app. It was invite only at the time. And so I get on the app and I'm like listening to this, to real, really smart conversations for like hours. And from, you know, from all over finance people, people who, you know, understood stocks, people who were studying Airbnb, people who were inside Airbnb, people that were hosts, it was this fantastic thing. And so that kind of, you know, and I would hop in and out of rooms and, but that was my first day on the app. And then from there, like these Hollywood rooms started popping up. And so I would go in them and, um, and, you know, people, somebody on stage would have a legal question and there wouldn't be a lawyer on stage. And so naturally I would raise my hand and say, I can answer that, you know, and, and speak to it. Or somebody would be giving bad advice. It's not a lawyer. And <laughs> there's plenty you know, of that of on course, the internet. Plenty of that. So like somebody, you know, it's, it's understandable. Someone asks a question, someone who's not a lawyer might want to share their experiences with something, but, but that's not the law. Um, and so, you know, purely educational, it's never, it's never, you know, legal advice. Of course, we can't get into those kinds of specifics simply because we don't have the time or, you know, we don't have access to all the facts, but, um, but it's really, and it just organically became popping up in rooms, legal questions would come up. And then people came to know me as somebody that was reliable, that could answer questions, um, you know, accurately. And that turned into a weekly room, a colleague of mine who I hadn't seen in years, um, happened to be kind of doing the same thing on the app. And so we were finding one another in rooms. And then, you know, he took me into a private room while we're in the bigger room talking. And he was like, how you been? I'm like, I've been great. What's going on? Um, and then we ended up doing a weekly room that's become a huge hit on the app. It's very well known. Um, and we had an epic night that was like 17 hours or some crazy thing where, um, Tiffany Haddish came in the room and was hanging out with us for hours talking about her legal issues. And like Bethany Frankel came in, Patty Stanger came in and it was not, this is not us inviting our celebrity clients or anything like that. It was a room (laughs) that was appealing to people like this. And one of the things we take pride in is that we have very real world conversations. It's not just a bunch of lawyers on stage. There are lawyers who work in all different areas. My co-host, David Weiner, he's um, a senior business affairs executive at UTA. I, I have my own firm. There are other people who are in-house. It's a big combination of people who do different things within entertainment law and play different roles. But we also on our stage have producers and writers and actors. We support artists. We have musical guests every week. We're like, go buy their music. Where can we find your stuff? Where can we go your shows? And it's like such a beautiful break in between all the heady conversation. Um, and we get to support the artists in that way as well. 
but um, but I think the greatest thing is that it's given us a platform to be of service. And at a time where, you know, I used to teach at the LA Film School, I'm not teaching now. Um, there's, we're not doing, you know, we're doing things like this, but, you know, I used to do in-person kind of panels and all sorts of other things. And, and it's been an interesting year and yeah. has created a very easy platform where I can be in my robe in bed if I want to be and, <laughs> and help, you know, and help people understand what it is that I do and try to help people. And so it's been incredible. It's something that I don't think anyone who, who came on this app kind of early on, like I did really could ever have thought it would have turned into this. And so he also has the question of like what the potential it has. I mean, the Hollywood community has gotten pretty tight. Um, it's actually, you know, it's like everyone sees each other in the different rooms over time and, and we always welcome new people. And so it's been a fantastic, a lot of people have ended up working together, um, again, reconnecting with colleagues. Um, and so, you know, it's been, it's been really magical in a lot of ways. I'm I am endlessly fascinated with the potential of this platform. I encourage a lot of artists to check it out. Uh, is it still in beta? Do you still need to get somebody to invite I you to bring you in? I think it's out of beta. Yeah. I think it's out of beta. Oh. And I have so many invites if anyone wants well, to. Oh, there may <laughs> yeah, be some yeah, people who take you up on that. <laughs> I got a lot of I got a lot of invites from, you know, putting in the hours, but It um, is a very I, cool platform. Yeah. And Ryan, you should come to our room Thursday night. I'm sure you would have a blast. And there's so much. You just, just let me know. I will, I will, I'll be there with bells on, but nobody will know because it's audio only. I, <laughs> I want to ask you with the time we have left Mitra, cause I mean, I, I, I want to make sure that we get as much good tips out of you as we can. Uh, since we were talking earlier about the, you know, with the Olivia Rodrigo issue about just the dangers of the, the IP world and, and that it's just fraught with landmines for creators. Can you talk a little bit more about just generally some of the mistakes that you see indie creators, regardless of medium making when trying to protect their IP rights? Do you, do you see a lot of the same things happening over and over? Well, yeah. I mean, the first thing is that when, when you're creative, um, one, you may not know much about the business aspects yet you know, many creatives learn over time, sometimes through mistakes, but sometimes just having a good team around them. Um, and so that's one thing. But the other thing is that when you're in a creative space, the last thing you want to do is pull out a piece of paper or, or call a lawyer and have them send over paperwork and then do that. It's like the last thing that anyone would want to do. And it's awkward and it's weird and it and people take it as like not trusting like oh you don't trust me and it's a buzzkill like you know you're in a studio or you want to make a movie or you guys are writing a script together and you know at some point you look at each other and you're like wait who who owns this and then it's <laughs> then we got to backtrack and that's not a fun thing to do it's a horrible conversation to have midway when there's different expectations so I always say, you know, the earlier on, at the very least, have a meeting of the minds, understand what the expectations are on both sides, ownership, you know, whenever creative people are working together, ownership is really important. Who's going to own that copyright? Who's going to control the copyright? Who gets to say when it's sold or licensed? That's huge. Can you both? Do you have to agree on it? What happens if you don't agree? What happens if like one of you just disappears and I don't, you know, and the other doesn't even know where they are, what happens to that property? So these are all things that need to be thought through. Uh, what if someone passes away? You know, it's like all the what ifs that need to be talked about and talked through. And if you can't afford to have a lawyer paper it just yet, at least have a conversation with a lawyer about the kinds of conversations you need to be having and what you need to at the very least get down for recording artists, it's super easy when you're writing a song. I mean, the labels give you split sheets. Like literally all you got to do is put your name and your percentage and everybody signs it. And then like, it's literally designed for avoiding that conversation in the beginning. And then you can kind of do all the stuff after the fact, but at least you know who has the publishing splits. And with, you know, recording artists, it's a little simpler with, you know, as far as who owns the recordings, because yeah. that's typically the, the record labels. But 
but that's one just get on the same page and you know mistake is being scared of having those conversations that's an important one and i'm glad you brought up split sheets because I've seen it all the time in songwriting sessions. There's there's nothing that takes the mood out of the room quicker than the person who brings out the split sheet, which you are correct when you say it's not nearly as scary of a document as you might see similarly in other fields, like writing scripts in a split sheet, very simple document, but it's still something with a piece of paper and that scares people. I, I found recently that technology has helped make, you know, this, you know, that awkward moment a little easier because there are apps like split sheets or song splits now where you can do it all on an app. And, you know, do I think that that app is, you know, every bit as good and covers everything that an ink and paper agreement does? No. But if you can at least, you know, it's a lot cooler when you're in a session to be like, hey, check out this cool app I have, as opposed to look at this scary piece of paper I have. And if you can at least get everybody to agree on the basics in the heat of the moment, you can get the lawyers to paper it, you know, a little bit later down the road when you're not trying to have fun in a cool songwriting session, but technology has helped with this a little bit, but you're absolutely right. And the sooner you can have that awkward conversation where, you know, who owns what and who can do what with the work, have that conversation early before money starts getting involved. Yes. Because once the money shows up and I'm sure you've seen this before, right? Everybody starts to get a fuzzy memory about uh, who owns what and uh, who co-wrote what and, you know, it gets a lot harder to get people to sign that thing once the money shows up. Listen, if Blurred Lines wasn't that much, it wasn't a hit. <laughs> you would not have Marvin Gaye's estate coming after That's okay, a, that's a so good point. Not, yeah. Uh, Same uh, thing for Good For You. That's right. right. Anything that comes up, if it's popular, it's going to take some heat. That's when, it, that's when it matters. You know, it's never, it's not, it's never that moment where this becomes important. It's always when things either go really well or go wrong that you need to go back to what's in the contract. So, yeah. and cleaning up those messes is not fun. <laughs> um, it's yeah. You're it's, absolutely it keeps right. You two employed though. So, Oh, I, I mean that, <laughs> yes, but I can tell you like, and, and I'm sure Mitra's on board with this. Like I much rather prefer to use the medical school metaphor. I'd much rather do the, you know, the general practitioner work of stopping the problem before it becomes a big problem than doing the surgery later because right. we let that legal issue metastasize into something that's a whole lot worse for a client. Great analogy, Brian. What's that? It's <laughs> a great analogy. <laughs> and it's one that I frequently explain to uh, to artists. Uh, you can find out more about our guest's work by visiting www.mitralaw or mitra law dot com that's mitra-law.com mitra ahurian everybody mitra thank you so much for joining us this week so much fun to talk to a fellow attorney yes thank you it's a fantastic time oh well good i jc i'm pretty happy that that she had a good time i uh i <laughs> always want to make sure that a a fellow like that that, that you know, she seems cool as i said before and i like cool people to think yeah. that they had a good time on break the business so that's fantastic. And man, she knows her stuff. And I, I do love what she's doing on Clubhouse. And I love that she offered that I could even like be in the room just kind of looking at it because, you know, she's done some cool stuff there. And I'm still kind of uh, treading my feet in the room up. Oh, you know what? Can we bring Mitra back? This is a very good point. Lauren, Lauren brought this up. Oh, gosh, Mitra. Do you have a quick second? Sure. Okay. I totally forgot. And I'm glad Lauren reminded us before we let you go. One final question that we ask all of our guests on the program. Sure. We got about a minute left, but I have to ask, do you have any last tips to share with the indie creators out there to help them move their careers forward? Oh, geez. Okay. That's huge. You want me to do that in a minute? I know. Not fair. I screwed it up. I'm sorry. Well, we got a whole <laughs> extra bonus hour. Here yeah. we go. Bonus. <laughs> um, really educate yourself. You know, this is, this is the advice I always give. This is, the entertainment business it's the music business it's the film business it's like this is a business and you can't as much as like creating um is a beautiful thing it's not enough right there's so much talent out there and it's the people who really understand the business that do well like any field so really educate yourself in any way read books ask questions talk to people um you know listen to webinars, find them. And, and that's really my biggest tip for anyone that's in the industry is really, and come to my clubhouse room yeah. and follow me on Instagram, Mitra ESQ. 
because <laughs> I have two videos there. So, um, so just wherever you can get the info, as long as it's a credible source, of course, then that would be my my final tip. Well, that last piece about joining you on Clubhouse—that's a tr- particularly tremendous piece of advice. All right, thank you for tolerating our silliness, Mitra. I, I promise we are <laughs> we're done with you now. All right, our thanks, of course, to Mitra Hurry, and my thanks to you, JC, for joining us this week. It's always a pleasure to get to talk to you, my man. Mm -hmm. And thank you all for checking out Break the Business. We'll see you next week.